Welcome to the Uncut Podcast. I'm Pastor Luke. I'm Pastor Cameron. And this is the Uncut Podcast where we have uncut and honest conversations about faith, life, and ministry. Um, Today, we're kind of picking up where we left off last week. So um, we're going to continue our conversation on sacraments and the theology behind them and their purpose and place in kind of Christian theology and practice and inside the church. Denominationalism. I think if, you, if you're watching this on YouTube you and you go back and look at our last video on, I think it was, we started with liturgy and church calendar. Yeah. And we moved into the sacraments. Yep. And someone essentially just says, are, are you guys Catholic or something? <laughs> like, as if only Catholics talk about the sacraments or have a sense of their importance or value. But Well, I mean, I'll be honest, like, that was, that was me at one point. Mm. I grew up outside of, outside of a highly structured denomination. It was technically a denomination, even though we kind of said we weren't a denomination. We mm-hmm. were essentially a denomination. Um but it was very much like the, like, we just do what the Bible says, like, and, you know, and I'm not bashing it by any means. I, I grew, grew up and grew as a very healthy Christian outside of, in this um, theological denomination that I grew up in. But I did it, it was like, oh, I, I had a very anemic understanding that there, I just thought there was what my church did and then Catholics. Right. I like, and so when I went and I began to interact, I was like, oh, there's other Protestants that like Catholics aren't the only ones that baptize babies. Like, that was like, I was like, the denomination I grew up in to baptize babies still right. does. Yep. So I was like, what? So, you know, mm-hmm. I can, I can sympathize a little bit, but that yeah. is like, a, a, maybe a, you know, I don't know, maybe not everybody knows that. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah, see, I grew up the opposite way. I didn't grow up Catholic, but I grew up in a denomination that, when I say grew up like seventh grade on, yeah, grew up in a denomination that regularly practiced at least, um, you know, communion and baptism as sacraments. They did baptize babies, um, and you know, obviously adults, um, usually by sprinkling. Mm-hmm. So not by immersion. Yeah, you want to really get you know you really yeah you really want to get someone reformed, uh, who's reformed you know all riled up about baptism. Say, well, in my Methodist church, we baptize babies by sprinkling. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you're doubly a heretic. The reformed person says yeah. so. Um, we kind of like half dunk them like an Oreo, right? <laughs> right. I don't actually. I don't know if that do reformed people do that or do they just pour? No, I guess that's still sprinkling. Yeah. I think most Reformed people are full immersion, or yeah. at least I would say like the evangelic, evangelical Reformed people, because I think in a sense, like even the Presbyterian Church would be considered ref- in the Reformed be. theological yeah. tradition, mm-hmm. but I don't think that they have a really strong sacramental theology in terms of sprinkling versus, versus immersion. immersion. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, but... Um, but yeah, you know, so the conversation maybe it seems like it it exists more in the realm of is this Catholic or Protestant or mm-hmm. whatever, but it's really just a I think a conversation that any 
Christian, yeah, right, would it, need to have or yeah, well, it, 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 is, it is that broad. I mean, I think maybe what we're running up against is in like it, and you and I might have more of a perspective on is because you and I, I know, have both uh, attended and pastored in different denominational pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everybody does that. Not everybody, or even as an attender, right? Like if you've grown up attending a Baptist church, yep. and now you attend maybe a different Baptist church, and if you were to leave that church, you'd go to a different Baptist church. Like there's a certain continuity that might be there. You kind of gravitate towards certain churches. But like right. I... Um, you know, grew up in a very non-denom church, uh, attended an Anglican church for a fair little stint, went to some other non-denom stuff, went to like some hipster churches in the city, um, went to a very reformed church for a while, um, was part of a very charismatic little small house church thing for a bit, like been kind of bouncing around a little bit more than maybe... Maybe not everyone's experience has had that much exposure. It's not. I'm not sure this is a question I've ever even asked you or talked about. But like, what would you on that whole that whole spectrum? Where would Village, your previous church that the you were serving church. at, where would they fall in like the? They they were, uh, we were, Evangelical Free Church of America (EFCA) was the denomination in which we belonged to. EFCA is. The best way I kind of know how to describe that denomination as a whole is where I would say probably most non-denoms end up in anyways. Um, like if you were to go to, well, I shouldn't say that, I suppose. I was in a church plant of the EFCA, mm-hmm. and so church plants tend to be the kind of younger kind of edge the direction that a denomination might be going, but not representative of the previous well-established churches of that denomination. Mm-hmm. So we would go to, um, I would say they were, the established churches of the EFCA were maybe a little bit more uh, conservative in practice mm-hmm. and maybe held some uh, more conservative or made a bigger deal out of certain eschatological opinions um, you know, uh, pre-millennial and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but as far as the church plants that we were and that I was interacting with the other church planters, like really wouldn't see anything significantly different between conduit and there, except for the one thing that like made us very distinctly e-free was congregationalism. Mm. We had to be a congregational church in polity or in the way that we churched and churched and organized the power structure yeah. was we had to have at least one you know congregational meeting a year in which the congregation voted on substantial things relating to the church so like every year we would um it was always a little nerve-wracking um but every year we would have a, a congregational meeting and they would vote to approve people on the board and things like that. We kind of had a bit of a hybrid model. Um, and then they also voted as to whether or not um, me and the other pastor kept our jobs for the next year. Um, it's like that. That was how that check and balance went a little yep. bit. Um, 
So that was always kind of an interesting. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody ever voted against us remaining in the position. So you guys had like but. a membership structure as well. Like, what makes you a part of the congregation in order yep. to vote? Yep, we had like a membership covenant that you needed to mm-hmm. assign, and that or sign, and that uh, that would meant that you were agreeing to abide by our bylaws and constitution, that you were in agreement with our statement of faith. And once you were a member of the church, you were eligible to be nominated by the board to be part of the board. And then we would have to bring that nominee before the congregation. And the congregation, I can't remember if the congregation had to vote affirmative or had to just not vote you, not just maybe just not vote against you. I can't remember exactly how we had that structured, but... Um, like it was a default yes, as long as nobody raised any significant concerns about the person's character or qualification mm-hmm. to be on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly how we had that structured, but that was, and then the board did the month to month, week to week kind of steering of the church by and large. Yep. Um, so that was kind of our church structure. Mm-hmm. And the board, a uh, subset of the board was the elders. Right. And so you had to be on the board, and then you could come and be established an elder through a multi-year process if mm-hmm. you wanted to. Mm-hmm. So that was a so like you've got like an eldership structure inside of a board structure inside of a congregational structure. Um, the only thing that was absolutely necessary for us, as far as the no- denomination was concerned, was the congregational structure. Were there like den- are there denominational officials? Mm-hmm. We had like a what do we call them? Superintendent or regional director, overseer, superintendent, bishop, something. Like yeah, that. something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, so we had something like that, but it was still. Um, I think the uh, the history of the denomination came out of Europe. Uh, it was very Swedish, um, I think, in kind of its roots, and there was a lot of controversy when it kind of formed as a denomination of um, the state having. The state having been very synonymous with the church, and um, anyone essentially there being some conflict over anyone being able to receive communion, actually as a fact. Oh, very so, good segue. Here. Yeah, so there was a there was concern because like the state, if you were you had to the state had say over membership essentially of the church, and so you were having people who were only coming to church every so often, um, and maybe not demonstrating what the denomination believed to be marks or signs of being an actual Christian, and they were having to administer communion because the state said so. And so they they wanted to be a free church, essentially. That's where the free part of the denomination comes Mm -hmm. from, being free, independent from um, not only the state, but also from a harsh overseeing structure that would um, that would determine a whole lot of mm-hmm. things. So in the establishing of that denomination, they very much wanted each congregation to be ruled by the congregations, hence the congregationalism, and then generally overseen by the denomination in not so much in a kind of controlling way, but in a accountability way. Mm-hmm. So it was a, hey, like, you can't be teaching that. That's not inside of the lines of what we've said is mm-hmm. appropriate for a denomination. We will like excommunicate you from the denomination if you continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there were some other things too. We had like a, a yearly meeting and they would like vote on things as a denomination and all that. Like, so you, Mm -hmm. so I, I think I technically could have gone to that and I think voted on like, I, while I was part of the denomination, they, they made a change in the belief statement. They changed it from being premillennial to glorious return of Christ. So they had at one point very held strongly to a premillennial coming of Christ. Um, and then they found that as time went on, that that became less of a significant theological hill to die on. Yeah. And what they found is that like a growing amount of pastors inside of their denomination were not becoming ordained and becoming officially a part of the denomination. Because they couldn't agree with the statement. Because they couldn't agree okay. with that one line of the statement. Yep. And they're like, well, we have a significant population of pastors who are pastoring our churches who are not ordained inside of her denomination because of this one line. And so they, they voted to change it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a quick history of that denomination. Mm-hmm. But as far as like outward looking practice and everything, um, you would, I, I would say that probably most non-denomination denominational churches, maybe on a slightly more conservative, like if you were to go right in the middle, non-denom, and then go slightly conservative, that would kind of place E-free. Mm-hmm. Um, and most churches that would kind of fit that general spectrum mm-hmm. would feel really comfortable in a denomination like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it brings me back to all kinds of thoughts and feelings about United Methodism and kind of where I was discipled early and grew up. And now, you know, United Methodism, if you follow the news at all or if you care at all, it's kind of like the implosion that's generally been happening over the last 50, 60 years is finally like seeing it actually well, fall it's, out. It's happen, almost, so. uh, almost a mirror of what happened with uh, the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. And the peace in the Presbyterian and Church. And the Presbyterian Church. Like it's, yep. it's mm-hmm. just um, each each one of those have kind of gone through this. Uh, yeah. They. I mean, they did, they they avoided it as much as they could. Yeah. To the point of their avoidance being really unhealthy and creating a lot of unhealthy culture and distrust of the episcopacy and um, the Council of Bishops and all of that. So I, you know, I, oh, geez, I don't know. Sherry asked me the other night, uh, or well, I guess it was a while ago, like, what would you have done if you were still in United Methodism? I was like, listen, I got my own problems. I <laughs> I, I got my own real problems yeah, outside of fictional ones. Right. I don't, I don't got to, I don't got to rehearse what I would do for a problem that I don't have to be a part of anymore. So like, I'm not even going to go, I'm not even going to go there. Um, but yeah, suffice it to say. There, uh, you know, most denominations I think end up being a response to something that they didn't like. Yeah. In the previous one. Well, it, and and non-denominationalism. That's right. that's. Well, it, it is. It does become a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black because a denominational someone who's very strong, in particularly a historic mainline denomination, would say like, well. Just like you guys just go start new churches, new denominations all the time, blah blah blah. Mm. But then, like, all of these big mainline denominations have had a essentially a split now and had to to create the conservatives 
have left the denomination and essentially created a new mm-hmm. independent denomination that was by and large similar except for it's going to continue to hold some orthodox and uh, conservative theological tenets while the other denomination is free to do whatever. Rather than continuing to have that internal fight, they have decided to just simply make separate houses. Correct. Yeah. So That's the story for most denominations that split. Yeah. So, but yeah, communion and sacraments has definitely been like, it's not what, Denominations are currently splitting over. No, historically, it's but probably historically, one of the bigger ones. Yeah, like that. Like that's been. Have people been killed over baptism? Um, I'm sure like they with have. The potato Baptists. I'm sure they or not have the the Anabaptists. Yeah, like uh, their persecution. I'm sure they have. Yeah. I don't. You know, like I'm not. A, I'm not a super well read church historian um, or Christian historian, but I'm, I'm certain that there people have gotten up in arms about it enough to declare people heretics or enemies yeah. of the church or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Um, but uh, both baptism, you know, when we talk about sacraments, we talk about, we're talking about, I don't know, I'm talking about, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about baptism and communion. Yeah. If you're a Catholic person and you're hearing this, you might. You know, seven. There's seven. There's seven sacraments. You know, um, some of which you're not. Not everyone is able to take or able to take. Of. Right, the priesthood. Right. Um, is holy holy orders. Holy yeah, holy orders. Yeah, mm-hmm. is um, a sacrament of the church mm-hmm. for the for Roman Catholics. Um, so I I. When you hear me say sacraments on the podcast, it's mm-hmm. I'm talking about baptism or communion. Yeah, you're not talking about foot washing. Not talking about foot washing, not talking about, you know, marriage or holy matrimony or holy orders mm-hmm. or um, anything like that. Yeah. So, well, and if you're, I mean, it's conceivable that somebody's listening to this and they're going like, sacraments, I call those things ordinances. Oh, what's the difference, Pastor Luke? There's not. Yeah. <laughs> the, <There>. spelling. <laughs> the spelling. The spelling. Is different. The spelling the, is different. Everything else is the same. Yeah. Well, some people... Or could be the same, Could be the same. I, I, I think historically, um, people who have not called sacraments sacraments, but preferred to call them ordinances, yeah. um, have... Part of the reasoning being that sacraments is a word that's extra biblical. It's not a word that's in the Bible necessarily. Um, signs and symbols is in the Bible, but that's what sacraments is referring to. It's this, I think it's a coming out of a Latin word. Sacramentum. Sacramentum and all of that. Um, but usually someone who's referring to baptism and communion and calling it an ordinance is usually trying to leave behind... Um, some of the theology associated with sacrament, sacramental thinking. Right. So there's a potential theological difference there, but yeah. by and large, we're referring to essentially the same thing. Well, I'd like to, like, you know, both of them are pretty big discussions in their own right. Yeah. Baptism and communion. I think we talked a little bit more about communion last week. We did. And so to continue kind of on in that conversation... Um, the, 
you know how when our very first episode we asked the question, what is biblical? Mm-hmm. I guess the question that I would ask in regards to the sacraments. Don't do it. <laughs> is, is communion biblical? Are you asking me or are you asking the 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 church um, history church, yeah well you know i mean i'm asking you i yeah. guess because um you know i know church history's answer yes i do too yeah but i am certainly not proposing that you know that we have special insight or anything like no. that or that we're asking questions that no one has ever asked right. or answered before right. i'm just simply posing the question as a matter of our conversation is that it's a little bit rhetorical because when you, for instance, you read the New Testament, we don't necessarily see communion talked about or practiced in the same way that it's we not, kind of understand it or talk about it no, now. Not not in the same way. It, the, um, Paul does talk about it in Corinthians. Right. Well, and the and the other thing about it is that we're not given, at least in my reading of scripture, we're mm-hmm. not given a whole lot in the way of here's what this means. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of the theology that has been written and proclaimed around things like I don't know, again, I'm talking about communion or the Eucharist yes, in yeah. particular. I stick with that one. Yes. Because <laughs> um, I think baptism is a lot more clear. Yeah, I think uh, there's more teachings on there's baptism. There's more teaching on baptism. I was immediately going to certain passages. Yeah. So I said, Ooh, we should talk about but yeah. like communion, right. keeping on track. Um, so, yeah, the, ta- the, like the occurrences of communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or mm-hmm. breaking of bread or X, Y, or Z. Yep in the biblical text is not really voluminous or comprehensive in the way that it like it meets out the theology well yeah a lot of that comes in the church era yes not the new testament era as as early believers began to in the church began to say how do we practice this Mm -hmm. they began to create like regular, uh, what's I've, holy cow! I lost the word. Um, liturgy, mm-hmm. <laughs> regular liturgy, a way of worship in which to practice these things. So to kind of answer your question, like I I've mentioned a couple, like I joked earlier, foot washing, and and the, one of the reasons I joke about that is I think I mentioned maybe an episode or two back is I did encounter a denomination that believed there were three sacraments, uh, baptism, communion, and foot washing. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that would be a, that would, they would fall underneath a big minority of like, that's not something that historically the church has not considered foot washing Mm a sacrament. But if I just ignore church history and I look at, really the same text in John, and we look at foot washing, Christ does say, do likewise. Right. Right. Like, like, and so all all that, I'm not making, I'm not necessarily making an argument that foot washing should be 
a sacrament. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that um, I think that well, foot washing actually makes a textually, as far as a biblical thing that Christ has told us to do. Right. Like, does it? Ha- is it? Is the argument? much stronger, much weaker than actually even the argument for communion out of the Bible. Yeah. Does that, does that point make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. I think that if I were to answer that from a very like basic view is that, you know, if, if the whole of sacramental theology was built upon John 13, then I would say that, yes, it has the same, you know, Jesus, they're celebrating the Passover meal and the breaking of bread mm-hmm. and all of that. And what we kind of where we see as the genesis of the communion practice in the early church. Right. Foot washing goes along with that. As I have done for you, you are to do for others type yeah. of thing. Um, so if all of sacramental theology around communion was built off of John 13, then I would say, yeah, that's a pretty strong argument. Um, but it's really clear that the church carries on sacramental theology past John 13, even yes. to some of the New Testament epistles, um, and then into church history as right. well, yeah. you know? Um, and from a from the standpoint of like the... Um, from the standpoint of like historical theological succession tracing back into those moments, it's like at what point would... The church have had a conversation about like, okay, is foot washing a sacrament or not? Right. Right. Well, and we right, and we don't have like in the New Testament, we have moments where Paul addresses communion. He doesn't do anything similar with foot washing, and so that that you know that point. But then also, we just know just historically that while foot washing may have been a practice, it's not been considered to be on par with communion in any church is not considered that. Right. And, and I, so I think part of it is in the, what, you know, what in generally we believe that the basis of sacraments are, mm-hmm. if it is a means, if, if a sacrament, if the working definition of a sacrament is a means of the grace of God, right. You know, uh, a means by which we receive God's grace. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a little bit of like I don't know, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm th- like splitting theological hairs here, but it seems like in so in communion we have the elements. Yep, we have bread and wine or juice or the cup mm-hmm. or whatever. In baptism, we have the water. Yep. Right. I guess in foot washing we have the water as well. In the towel. In the towel, right? But it for me it seems a little bit more like. It seems more of like a horizontal relationship, mm-hmm. person to person, rather than a means of God's grace, grace. Right. coming down. And, and the way in which Jesus, Jesus doesn't explicitly tie, um, doesn't tie the gospel as directly to foot washing as he does necessarily mm-hmm. communion, right? Because communion, he's got the whole dialogue, this is my blood, this is my body, poured out and broken for the new covenant that I'm making. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do that with foot washing, right? Mm-hmm. He says, as I am 
being a servant, you must also be a servant unto one another. Right. As I have loved, and he says the right. same thing about other, right. same phraseology right. for other things. Right, and that's and that's not to say that that has zero zero connection to the gospel, but it is not as directly tan, like directly lined up yeah. and in tied to the gospel the same way communion is. But the whole reason I bring that all up is just to say that having a I feel like having a discussion about communion or baptism, the sacraments, and saying, well, let's only think about what the Bible says and not talk at all about church history and church practice is to really undercut like the entire conversation, I think. Mm. It's to put us, it's to unnecessarily put us back at square one and to ignore um people who were much closer to the original texts Mm -hmm. and their immediate understanding and interpretation of those texts. Yeah. And so like I, I've began, I, I, you know, I came out of a tradition that was like just the Bible uh, and not tradition. And, and my journey of faith has been like, well, no, like I think we should learn from tradition, not be bound by it, but I think we should learn from it. And so when we come to, and maybe this is not the point that you were trying to make, but I think if we're if we're asking if is communion biblical, um, like, and we're asking that question with the idea of excluding tradition, I think we undercut the under. I think we undercut our conversation mm-hmm. and the and most of the place in which we come to stand on because commun- like you said, the texts on communion are fairly sparse like not not absent we see that it exists we right. just don't have a good understanding of what it actually means right so i don't know what do you think about that do you do you agree or do you feel differently about the role of tradition and church history in that well i mean <laughs> you know i i think yeah you cut i think you cut theological belief off at the knees to say that church history is unimportant mm mm-hmm. It's not primary. No one's saying it's primary. Right. Um, well, some people are, Some people would not, say it's primary. Not you and no I. No one in this room is saying it's primary. Right. Uh, for the same way that we that we use beliefs in apostolic secession mm-hmm. to um, have faith in the canon, mm-hmm. it's this, it would be the same for me, same thing. Like, okay, why do I, why do I trust the Bible? Mm-hmm. Well, I trust the Bible. There, there are many reasons. One of those reasons is the his, the history of apostolic secession, knowing right. that you know, like its its historical connection to the people that were proximate mm-hmm. to Jesus and their accounts of him, right, um, gives me a sense of like. It gives me a peek into the most raw and probably pure form of um, theological relevance that you know you can have that there can be. Um, that for me still does not answer a lot of the questions that I have about them. Um, you know. Like I got asked a question once, if you had to say what sacrament was more important, what would you say? Mm. And it's a really an impossible question to answer. Right. 
because they they function a little bit differently in the life of the, of a believer. I think sure. they still both represent the a means by which we receive or experience the mm-hmm. grace and presence of Jesus, mm-hmm. the grace and presence of God. Yeah. Um. You know, if it were if it were a complete if it were an answer that you needed to, or a question that you needed to answer com, based completely on the textual evidence, I think you would have to say that well, baptism is certainly more present in the New Testament mm-hmm. than communion is, or at yeah. least we have kind of a better grasp theologically on what baptism is, based on what is said both from Jesus and primarily Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's not really a it's not really even a question. You can't even answer. It's like, well, what one is more important? They're both important. I don't. Right. I'm not going to yeah. give up either of them. Right. Like, yeah. But there's also a certain amount of what I think becomes difficult for what I think becomes difficult for 21st century peoples, and maybe this is not just us, but all peoples, is that there is the necessity of embracing a fair bit of mystery. Mm. When it comes to sacramental life, yeah, um, and we are not generally comfortable with that. It's particularly not post enlightenment. Are right. we comfortable with that? No. So after the seventeen hundreds or so, we kind of all of all of um, the Western world, at least, kind of eschewed anything that could not be logically or rationally explained or scientifically, or scientifically explained, explained. Right. and so. Things like how does a piece of bread and a cup of wine or juice or whatever you are, if you're a good Baptist, you only take it with wine, right? Or with, with juice, I should juice, say. Juice, juice. Yeah. Um, how do those two things really like transmit, communicate? Right. What what the is presence and means yeah. of how are they means of God's grace? I can make, I can make bread in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. Why is it now something special? Because it's on the altar and we're we're proclaiming words of institution over them. Yeah, um, and there is a bit of mystery wrapped up in how God works by His grace, yeah, or by His presence to administer grace through those really practical, tangible in your mouth type of means. Exactly. And yeah, and so we we're, we are just we live in a culture that loves an explanation for everything, everything. right? Yeah. And we we love to have everything systematized, you mm-hmm. know. It's um I'm not I don't want to bash systematic theology because I think systematic theology has a lot of gifts for the church. But I think one of the downsides of it is that systematic theology is not good at making room for mystery. mystery. Or complexity in it, like we want a system of how God operates, and then everything must sit fit inside of that system. And I think sometimes that can lead to pushing and ignoring mystery or simplifying things so that they fit into a box, and that's not always the best thing. Yeah, I always get that feeling when I read books on the Trinity. Yeah, I'm like, bro, you made that up. <laughs> you made that up. Like we're reading the same text. You're stretching it here yeah. to make it fit your thesis. Oh yeah, so. the amount of times that someone pulls a like a singular passage, like one verse out of Psalm, right. and makes a giant theological implication out yeah. of it, just makes me mad. Just can we just all say we don't get it? 
Right. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Faith seeking understanding, not right. obtaining understanding. Yes. That's a famous, famous quote is faith seeking understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we've taken that quote and wanted it to say faith obtaining understanding. Yeah. And we seek understanding. We don't necessarily guarantee that we obtain it. Um, so if we were to trace some of the biblical mm-hmm. evidence for communion. Yeah. Okay. Let's start there. Where, like, I think we would both start, I would start in the last days of Jesus' life. Mm-hmm. He meets with his disciples in an upper room. Yes. In fact, he gives them to he gives them direction to go into Jerusalem and to prepare the Passover meal, mm-hmm. which is an interesting. Well, I was about to say, caveat, I was like, you know, I was thinking, I was like, is there anywhere else you could start? Yeah. I think you could start with Passover. Could start with Passover. Well, or even you could even start with. Um, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood yes. post Cain. Well, you could, but there's not. There's also not. There's not ample enough evidence in the Gospels mm-hmm. that what Jesus and his disciples were eating that night was the Passover. Mm. I mean, if you take the text at its, at its face value, Jesus sends them in to prepare the Passover meal. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, none of the Gospels say, and as they sat down to eat the Passover meal, Jesus took the bread. Right. Interesting. So when was Passover? Was it on the Friday? Was it on Good Friday, the day he was being I crucified? Know. Do we know? I don't know. I've always I like that is a new thing. I have always assumed that it was a Passover meal that they were having. I mean, I think that's the assum- that's the easy assumption because mm-hmm. of what Jesus says. That mm-hmm. I, I mean, that would be the most logical inference that we can make is that he sends them into Jerusalem to prepare. For the Passover meal, mm-hmm. but we know what the Passover generally um, included or did from Old Testament texts, you know, the historical narratives. Mm-hmm. But we don't see any of those other elements in the gospel accounts of the Passover celebration, mm-hmm. other than the fact that they're sitting at a table eating a meal with two elements that would not have been that would have been at the table for any meal right in the ancient near east hmm. you know there was no now like that's maybe like a a pretty maybe I'm I'm being a little cheeky a little about, minimalist yeah a little cheeky about all that because <laughs> um you know because all other things point to the fact that it Probably was mm-hmm. the Passover, even when you begin to consider the theological implications of the pa- or what the, the theology of the Passover was, the, the theology of you know land, the, Jesus being the lamb, lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, and like yeah, the, you know. So I think the like people right. who say it was the Passover meal stand on probably pretty good solid right. foundation. However, right, well, because the symbology is still there because Jesus did say prepare for Passover. Like Passover was happening, whether or not it was specifically tied to that meal, Passover was happening. That's the reason he was in Jerusalem. That's the reason he was in Jerusalem. Well, so the, I think, I think that at least still continues to carry at least significant overtones of understanding the atonement. 
I, I, if you want to say like that maybe weakens the argument for yeah. its direct correlation to right. communion, fine. But the, I think the atonement stuff's still there. So, so maybe we begin to say that, all right, well, then is communion, is communion the Christian way of celebrating Passover? Well, no. So it doesn't hold the same theological themes. No, because we're not celebrating Passover. Right, we're not. Right. But but the reason that we're not celebrating Passover is because we're not Jewish. Right. Right? Yes. We celebrate what Christ did for us on the cross. But mm-hmm. if if the institution of communion was done by Jesus mm-hmm. at the in the theological tradition of Passover. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Then we are I mean it would make sense to me that the the common thread of God's atonement for sin right runs mm-hmm. from Passover through Jesus in the words of institution when he breaks bread and the cup and gives it to his disciples mm-hmm. and then and then through the New Testament church mm-hmm. which was both Greek and Jew yes so it feels to me like the celebration of communion follows the thread of salvation through Passover mm-hmm um and so that's why I asked the question is like well it feels a little bit like a not a Christian Passover in the actual syllab- like the historical sense right but a Christian Passover in the theological sense yes that the same theological themes right have not stopped passing over of judgment sacrifice atonement because the sacrifice has been made, blood right. has been spilled. Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn. Yeah. Freedom and new life afterwards, right. right? Like that's... Yes. Boom. Yeah. We preach the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> all right. So, yeah, like maybe... maybe you don't have to go back there, but like, you know, you're, you're welcome to... You, know, like you can start at, at least the Last Supper. Well, I mean, to be... Perfectly honest with you, like I think that if you if you want to create a more robust position of theological belief mm-hmm. on communion, the New Testament is not full of it, but the old is. Mm-hmm. If you're saying that it's connected with, if you're saying that like there is a unbreakable link between. Communion at the end stage and Passover at the beginning stage. Mm-hmm. So what we do on the first Sunday of every month and what God instituted in the Old Testament in mm-hmm. the Passover and, you know, Day of Atonement and yeah. all of that. I think I agree with that. Yeah. I think that's there. I think, I think so too. we're not aware of it because we're not, we're Gentiles, we're not Jewish. And so the... Well, we don't ever talk about communion outside of the, the New uh, Testament. Right. Because that's where that's where the implications for Gentiles like starts in in order to talk about the um talk about the Old Testament implications. Like it requires a little bit more not to say that that has zero meaning for the Christian who's Gentile, but it does require us to understand the historical context of what it meant to the Israelite and Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And then 
how that then f- is fulfilled and then expanded in the Last Supper. Yeah. Like we have to, we can't, it's not enough to simply, if you were to get up and do communion and we were to, and you were to present and you were to talk about Exodus and the Passover and the lamb on the, on the doors and, and to talk about that and then to say nothing of Christ, you will, you would have not um, talked about communion. Correct. Right. It requires us to. It, it there, it's a two step of what it was and what it now is because of communion in Christ. And yeah. you have to go back and then come forward to the cross yeah. every single it's time. The more perfect covenant made yeah. by His blood. Right. Yeah. And so I think sometimes we don't always go back because well we know we're just going to end up at the cross anyways. So yeah. sometimes we shortcut it that way. Yeah. You know. But we lose then. I think it's theological. It's really strong theological anchoring. Yeah. Well, and the anchoring of, you know, it's interesting because, like, as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, yeah, like that really, it provides even just a greater anchor for the gospel, period. Mm -hmm. Right. If we have this greater understanding of, like, like, we, like, if I go up to someone who's never interacted with Christianity before and I just say, Christ died for your sins on the cross. That is a pretty weird statement if you haven't at first also believed the pre- the presupposition that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Mm-hmm. Or that I need forgiveness at all. Or that I need forgiveness at all. That the heart is uh, endlessly wicked and deceitful yeah. and who yeah. can discern it except for God. Uh-huh. That we have all gone astray that we there's a way of living in righteousness and a way of living in folly and we have chose folly over and over again right mm-hmm. all that is old testament theology um it, it without that christ does not make sense right right and I, and we were talking the other day um in a couple of meetings about how jesus in his appearance on the road to emmaus yep in post in luke chapter 24 you know how Jesus in po- his post-resurrection appearances, um, or I, post-resurrection pre-ascension yes. uh, appearances, connects the work of his resurrection into new life with all that was said about him in the law, mm-hmm. in the prophets, yep. and the Psalms. Right. That the that the truth of not Jesus as the person. Mm-hmm. But as the Christ, the truth of the Christ, right. the Savior, the Messiah, the one who has come to take away the sins of the world, uh, be atoning sacrifice for our sins, um, is the, that theological theme is traced all the way back into the first breaths of Scripture mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah. So. So we agree. We agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. The Old Testament is important to the theology of the New Testament and to the gospel as a whole and to how we understand communion. Communion. Yeah. Yeah. So then we see Jesus. Let's just assume it was the Passover meal. Okay. See Jesus institute, or not institute, but talk about the breaking of the body and the shedding of blood. Uh, In fact, we can just pick a maybe a... 
a um, we've been talking about John chapter thirteen. It's one of the longer institutions of it, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but it also really talks about more about his uh, more about the foot washing than it does about the meal. Yeah. Maybe John's not the greatest example here. It does it is interesting though that in John chapter thirteen he says it was just before the fast Passover feast. Oh, oh. interesting. So, so um, perhaps. Um, but uh, where are you? Oh, I actually went to Luke 22. Yeah. Uh, verse 7 says, Actually, then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So. Well, and Jesus said, Go make preparations for us yeah. to eat the Passover. Yeah. Uh, Lord, parrot. Da, 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 da. Um, and then verse 14, Then the hour came. Jesus and his apostles were climbing at the table. So I eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Okay, so Jesus answers the question already. It yeah, is the Passover. It is meal. the Passover meal according to Luke. Okay. So. Well, Luke could be wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. Yeah. And so he he verse seventeen Luke twenty two after taking the cup he gave thanks and said. Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Um, so that that's... You know, Luke's account is a little bit probably. I would guess to be the account that most people have heard the least. Really? In at least in like the liturgical life around communion, hmm. I think the ones that we, or at least maybe the phraseology that I'm most familiar with, I think is out of Matthew. Um, let me go to it here. I should have these things. Marked. 26. Yeah. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus. Where do you want us to make preparations for Passover? Um, Then, down in verse 26. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until on the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. It's pretty short. Mm-hmm. Then they sung a hymn. Then they sung a hymn. It's an argument for hymns, Cameron. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's uh, not, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that logic, verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. So it would also be um, an argument for climbing a mountain. Post service. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's really all we get. 
mm-hmm. in terms of explanation. Um, you know, whatever we get in the book of Acts, um, you know, I'm feeling a little ill-equipped at this point to to fully um, explore a theology of communion in the book of Acts. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was reading earlier today, because I, I think I kind of knew that we were going to talk about this. Yeah. Um, in Corinthians. Yep. Um, first Corinthians. First Corinthians. 11. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and 10 as well. Mm. Uh, so we have yeah. Paul, we have Paul's letter to the Corinthians and he has some spots in there about communion or the Lord's supper. Um, so first Corinthians chapter 10 verse 14 Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple points that I would make about this particular portion of what Paul says about mm-hmm. communion, or that I find interesting, I guess, not points. I'm not sure. trying to preach right now. But um, one is that this is one of those places where we hear Paul talk about communion Sort of in the same way that he talks about baptism. Mm-hmm. Participation. Participation in the life of Christ. Yep. Union. Union. Yep. Unity with Christ. Mm-hmm. So in baptism, we are united with Christ in his death so that we can be united with him like in, this in his resurrection, mm-hmm. Romans chapter 6. First Corinthians 11 or 10, I should say, you know, when we we give thanks because of or we take from the cup in participation in the blood of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and in partition, and and we take of the bread um, in participation in the body of Christ. Yeah. Um. Now, are those what is what what do those things? What does that mean? mean? What are we alluding to when we we when we say, well, we're participating in the blood of Christ, we're participating in the broken body. Uh, well, breaking of Christ. Well, so this leads me to kind of ask a question I've had sitting in my back pocket because you've said it a couple times, and we've—I don't know that everyone is familiar with it, but I think this passage is maybe one of the stronger passages actually for the basis of what you're saying, Cameron. What do you mean when you say it's a means of grace? Mm-hmm. It's a way. It's a way in which. Um, it's a way in which God. Um, I know it's a like I was like ah, and it's because you've said it a couple times. Yes. You've like commun like I believe that communion is a means of grace. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Out of the two of us, you're probably the one with a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be I'd be hard pressed to give a clear explanation as to why I think that or exactly what I mean. I think I'm a little vague on what I mean yeah. by that. To gi- I mean to give like maybe what would be a, a pretty like. Um sterile definition sure i guess it would be um a practical way in which god transmits the 
his grace in Jesus Christ to us. Mm -hmm. So like it becomes a tangible expression Mm -hmm. of a spiritual reality. Yeah. So the participation participation is a way in which we experience something that we physically experience that that um represents a deeper spiritual reality but that we experience in the physical world yeah but that is linked with the mysterious transmission of the grace of god through jesus christ and i think that right there is probably this a significant difference between that's what we mean when we call it a sacrament mm-hmm. versus just calling it maybe an ordinance, mm-hmm. at least in my mind, that right there, that that distinctive, that it's not just a thing that we do because we were told to do it, and it's a place of just remembering that Jesus did this, mm-hmm. but that there's also something that Christ is actively doing. In that moment. In that moment, that we yes. are participating in some way in this yes in a physical and spiritual sense not that i know how no i leave all of that a mystery yeah but simply say it seems that there is a spiritual dynamic going on at the table Mm -hmm. because that's how paul talks Mm -hmm. and there we go like for so for me i think that's a key key point in a growing understanding of we're not just taking juice and bread, we are participating in something, and mm-hmm. we're participating specifically in Christ. Yes, in a very real sense. Yeah. In in communion, in the shedding of His blood, mm-hmm. breaking of His body, which <laughs> extends to us what? What does the participation in the breaking of the Jesus body and the shedding of His blood extend to us? Um, I mean, like. Yeah, I mean, the God, it, it essentially extends to us what was accomplished by Jesus on the cross, right? right. Which is right. the ability for us to be reconciled to God through forgiveness and faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the significant, like, these are deep realities, realities that I'm not even, like, I even, like, inwardly tremble a little bit to even, like, try to talk about, Yeah, you know? So like it maybe the the question again between um uh what we celebrate on Good Friday and what we celebrate on Easter Sunday mm-hmm. like we participate in the body and blood of Christ on Good Friday we se- we participate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on mm-hmm. Easter Sunday because through the blood and through the body we are forgiven our sin is we are put to death, like our sin is put to death, right? and we are raised to new life in Christ in mm-hmm. by the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead. Yeah. Um. And so, a little bit of the, a little bit, I think, of the understanding of again the sacraments is it is again a full retelling, in many ways, a full retelling of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, which there again is the benefit of liturgy. It gives an opportunity to retell the gospel in the midst of the means of grace yeah. of the gospel in the moment of celebration. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It, it's, it adds a, I, I'm, I'm enjoying and liking this conversation because it, 
for me, it, it gives at least me the space to sit here to retread this theologically so that next time we do communion, like I am fresh again inside of the, the meaning and the, the fullness of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we can, this is life, right? We get caught up into life and what should not be mundane and ordinary becomes mundane and ordinary. Mm-hmm. And so this, like the fact that we are invited by Christ to participate in the cross and in his body and un- and that's something we get to do on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. like is oof, huge. Huge. Which is why doing it every Sunday morning does not cheapen it or make it less right. special. Because our frequency of, of participating in Christ, like one cannot participate in Christ enough. Yes. I only desire to participate in the work of Christ that has won for me salvation and forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Once a first Sunday of the month, I'm good. The rest of it, I don't want it to become too familiar to me. Right. Because then it becomes... <laughs> Yeah, we've 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 background. gone down that rabbit yeah. hole before, um, but but also it it merits to say that we don't go as far as um, Catholics would say and and say that the we don't have the continuation of that theology where um, we're denying people Christ, right? Or we're or we're um, someone has to be saved in order to or, or someone. Uh, in order to be saved, one must be able to take communion or have taken communion or like... Or the reverse. Or the reverse. Or you have to be saved in order to take communion. Yeah. Well, that's a topic that we got to talk about. <laughs> like, I want to... Like, that's a bigger topic, I, th- yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Um, because at least my impression is that historically the church has made that distinction. I think in some cases they have, yeah. yeah. Not not all. No, not yeah. all. Um, yeah, uh, you. We talked last week in the podcast about the Didache, mm-hmm. which was extra biblical teaching surrounding the practices and history of the church. Yes, in its earliest form. Yeah, you know, and one section of the Didache essentially withheld. The sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, in this case, mm-hmm. um, from um, those who had not explicitly expressed—I don't remember the, the exact language—but mm-hmm. who had not essentially who are not yet Christian, right, right, Which, or not yet baptized mm-hmm. Christians. Should we pull it up? Yeah, I think I can grab it really quick. I was I was reading it earlier today. Um, Because I think there is a fine line there, of like, I don't, I don't think you, I don't think either of us would say that someone who is not professing Christ in any manner, um, communion would be for them. I don't think. Um. So this would be dedicate eight ten. Um, the ninth, well, actually, the ninth, um, section in Didache. Concerning the broken bread, we give ye, we give thee thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou didst make known to us through Jesus thy servant, 
To thee be glory forever, as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one. So let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom, for thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let none eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the Lord's name. For concerning this also did the Lord say, Give not that which is holy to dogs. So they connected the words of Jesus, mm-hmm. don't give what is holy to the yeah. dogs. Yes, which is its own very unique passage. Right. Um, so it, 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 at least that idea was at least existing within mm-hmm. the early church. Yeah. We know that. Um, I think that when we... This is a really this is a really tricky one for me. It is. It's really tricky. Because I think if we have a primary theology of communion as a participation mm-hmm. in the death of Christ. Right. The broken body and the shedding of the blood. Then I would lean towards the um uh yeah, you you need to probably profess faith in that work in order for it to be like in order to participate in it, mm-hmm. you know, or to, in order to participate in communion, you should profess faith in the, you know, the work of Jesus Christ for the death of Jesus Christ for your salvation you should be Christian. Yeah. If we lean towards maybe a different way, mm-hmm. which would say that the um, that the elements that are at the table are a means by which God extends his grace and forgiveness mm-hmm. to all those present, then I would lean towards like, well, God's grace and forgiveness is present and offered to all mm-hmm. you know while we were still sinners right christ died for us so the sacrifice of jesus and the offering of what he did and all that's theologically bound up in that was particularly for sinners mm-hmm. not those who had expressed faith in jesus mm-hmm. or there was no faith in jesus before you, you right, get what i'm right. saying right yeah yeah Card before the horse chicken you. or the egg yeah um, and so if in the act and practice of breaking the bread, sharing the cup, we are proclaiming the offering of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then isn't it in the a very real way a proclamation or an invitation to come and to come and believe, mm-hmm. to come and receive? the gift of God that is given to us in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Mm-hmm. And I know it would be many people's testimony that the gospel was proclaimed to them many, many, many times mm-hmm. before they accepted, yes. internalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, 
from a practical standpoint, as pastors, what, what are we to do? Are we to say, okay, listen to the proclamation of the gospel, but if you are not ready to receive it and internalize it, do not take the elements. Mm-hmm. Why? Do we, like, does the person speak judgment upon themselves by doing so? Mm-hmm. Um, like, we're not saved through communion. Right. So are we condemned by thr- through it? it? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Which we talked about last episode, that as it goes on in First Corinthians, like it... Yeah, I would love the opportunity to talk about that sometimes because it's an extraordinarily misunderstood passage. I got in a big argument with a seminary friend in a seminary classroom about that passage and just completely ignoring the context of it. Just right. to, But anyway, so if it... You know, if it doesn't save us, which we all agree that it doesn't, mm-hmm. communion does not save us. Yep. Can it condemn us by taking it? Can we? Can it? Can we condemn it? Or is it just not good, wise practice to take it? It seems like it seems like it's either it's either a well it condemns you if you take it and you have not believed mm-hmm. or it's not a big it's or it's not a big deal I, I don't I'm having a hard time understanding how it can be somewhere in the middle like well it's not advisable that you take communion if you haven't believed right but um but you can if you want I guess mm-hmm. doesn't feel to me like that's historically the church's position no I don't think so. So, I don't know. That's not really an answer. No, I mean, I think I, I think to go back to that First Corinthians ten passage, it does um, does it not say um, does it not make mention about participation in the body of like or am I or am I conflating with what we well, just read? Because there today? is one loaf, we who are many yeah. are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Right. So. There, in that unique, in that passage alone, I feel like it carries maybe two of the poles. It's about participating in in the thing that Christ is doing. But then it is also um, a participation in the community that is now formed because of what Christ has done. Okay. So there is a... Um, I feel like that might give, I think that's another peg in the potential, like the thought that it is for those who are confessing Christ, because if you're not confessing Christ, you're not part of the body of Christ either. Mm-hmm. And so if you would sit outside of that, like, is that for you? I mean, it is in a sense of like, it is for you because we want you to be part of it. To be the gateway into the body. it is the gateway for yeah. it, right? And I think what we're really, maybe what we're really kind of running up against is like, is it the church's job <laughs> to gatekeep? Yeah. And how much, and how even feasible no. is it? I was, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this earlier today because there are churches out there, right, that have like, you know, well, in order to take communion, you must be baptized by us, and then you also have to take this class, and you must do this, da 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 da, da right? And you've got to be in good standing membership, sign the membership book, and sign in for your attendance at church. Um, 
Like for some people, that might all sound very strange, but that is normal for some churches in practice. Um, like, and one of the reasons for doing all of that is what fencing or guarding the table, ensuring that believers are taking the communion. But the thing is, is even with doing all of that, you are still going to have people who are not Christian who do not know Christ. And so the question becomes is like, are we practicing the exercise of trying to sort out the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, when perhaps maybe we should be a little bit more generous where we put that line? I think that's where we're kind of coming to is like, you know, I wouldn't encourage someone who has no to little interest in Jesus to take communion. Mm -hmm. Um, But someone who is like, figuring out faith who's like in their like because like in in all of this becomes so much cleaner if we have a moment of salvation theology where we believe someone becomes saved at a certain time on the clock on a certain date when they pray a prayer and i think while that is some people's experience, that is not everyone's experience. Mm-hmm. And I think some people were even more willing to say, well, that was a bit more of a process than it even it maybe felt. Um, but if that's the case, well, that becomes even harder to delineate when the line, when someone has crossed the line of being in the book of life or not. Mm-hmm. And so how do you do that? Right. That I think, I think that maybe even more clearly puts not so much the theological question, it's just the application of the theological questions of where do we draw that line? Right. I don't know. Me neither. (laughs) I hope you weren't listening to this podcast for answers. Um, Um, I don't know. Um, I think from. I guess in a real candid way, I'm more interested as a pastor, I would be more interested in the the extending of God's the grace. extending of the table yes. than the guarding of the table. I agree. I agree. I don't hate to disagree with the Didache, but I don't think that that passage about dogs is not about communion. It's not about communion. I don't think that's well applied. And I don't think that the Corinthians 11 passage, yeah. it, it is talking about the condemnation of believers yes. who are taking communion in such a way as to snub other people Correct. in the church or deny other people in the church communion. Yeah, the opportunity. Like, they literally eat up all the elements right. before the rest of them get there. They are in their own way fencing the table and exactly. being condemned for it. Right. And so I don't, I don't necessarily see Paul particularly concerned with um, denying the table from those who are seeking Christ. No. As much as Paul is even maybe more angry at people who know Christ but are dishonoring Christ. Right. What about kids? Let the little ones come to me. Yeah. Right. If we take that seriously, right? Yeah. I I mean, I think so. What about from a theological, deeply, like a, a more 
theological more standpoint. theological standpoint. Well, then it becomes the like the arbitrary decider of like the age of discernment, which nobody has a real answer for. No. Um, and you know, there's a there is a sense in which, well, and that would make you know. You could say that, oh, okay, First Communion, you get it age, whatever. I don't even know what it is. Right, you could say that. It's age but, 10, but then you have um, uh, grown adults who have significant mental limitation, limitations. Yeah. Saying, well, they don't really understand it, so again, we, we must guard against it. Just because someone has greater mystery than us does not mean right. that they, they can't participate. Correct. Yeah. Um, and similarly, and also I would say for children that they're in a way they are participating in their parents' faith, mm-hmm. which is like a, that's another theological. It's very pedo-baptist of you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let you take that, that standpoint yeah, when we, yeah. next week when we talk about baptism. Oh gosh. Yeah. I don't know. I was thinking about that, but uh, I was just like, I'm going to regret saying this, yeah. but like a kid is coming to church not out of their own choice and not necessarily out of their own faith. They're coming out of their parents' faith. So like their, their even participation in a gathering of the saints is out of the faith of their parents Mm -hmm. as their parents train them up in the way in which they should go. And so I don't think that it is an ex I don't think it's overextending that understanding to say that that is how children can participate in Christ through the communion table. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I would agree. Yeah. Well, we should probably end it there <laughs> before we get open up more cans of worms. We can do um, that. But I hope that this conversation, like, I hope that we're modeling um, a way of doing theology yeah. that is healthy, but also is demonstrating maybe some vulnerability um, and some leaning into the uh, mystery. Because I think it would have been easy for either you or I to like find a systematic theology or a theologian that we just like and just say that one just come and represent at someone's someone else's standpoint just, or what they've written down a hundred percent and yeah. and and just trumpet that and then say yeah. here i stand thus far i will not move yeah like um but that's not that's not in the way in which we've we've chosen to to practice theology uh-uh. at this moment here no. And so it's a really disingenuous way, I think, to go about your faith. Yeah, I think it would. I, I think it would soothe some of the anxiety of us coming up to these questions and saying, "Oh, this is really hard to answer," because then we could just quote someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I am. I'm not unsympathetic to that stance, but I do think that um, you know. I I think I hope that people listening understand that. Our genuineness in this is a desire to demonstrate good theology mm-hmm. and and biblical submission to Christ, mm-hmm. um, and I mean that biblically. Yeah, um, right. But it's it's also a, a desire to not just simply um, pull someone else's answers out yeah. and, and trumpet those as our own. So right. Yeah. As always, if you have questions or things that you want us to tackle at some point we have a mailbag that you can text 716-201-0507 
I've finally, however many episodes this in, you memorized right. it. I've memorized it now. <laughs> <laughs> Can also answer the questions or ask questions in the comments if you're on YouTube. Uh, leave us a rate and a comment on um, whatever format that you're watching it on or listening to it. Really helpful for us to get more exposure for it. And we will see you next week when we talk about baptism. Next time. <laughs>